the you made the by far the most important Canadian movie ever made. Yeah. And what was amazing about it was that I looked at it again because did you really? I yep. haven't seen it in a while. I looked at it again, and it's a good transfer. And I have to say, I thought, okay, I'm going to look at this thing, and it's going to feel like a movie from the whatever period, and it's going to feel, you know, from the 80s, early like 80s, 80s yeah. early 80s, and it's like, but like late 70s, early 80s. Like I'm going to see, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to look at this at this movie, this older movie, and it's going to feel, you know, like maybe there'll be some signs of your photography in it, but it'll be early you, and maybe it'll feel a little dated. It's a really good looking movie. Like, it's a fantastic looking movie. Thank you. It's a gorgeous movie. And do you know, I've never done the remaster, and I've, I've wanted to do the remaster on that forever because I could make it so much even better now. So, why wouldn't it's just the whoever, studio won't let you? Or? No, it's not even this. It, it's just, it, it kind of is owned by different home video companies, and they don't know to call, and, you know, but. They don't know to actually pick up the phone and say, hey, would you like to retransfer yeah, this? Yeah. But now, uh, with Columbia, I yeah. mean, Sony is great about that stuff. Right. But they're not the ones that, that have the that title. So that's now, how did you get the call to make that movie? Um, are we recording? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fabulous. I'll, fabulous. I'll do the introduction at the end. Great, great, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was doing, oh, I remember. I was doing Spring Break. Mm-hmm. Was it Spring Break or was it the second one? I think it was Spring Break I was doing with my friend Brian Frankish, who was the AD. Uh -huh. I have to remember this. And because uh, it was either Spring Break or The New Kids, and that was a horrible movie, and so was Spring Break. But he got a call from the producer, Jack Grossberg, mm -hmm. to come up to Canada to do it. He sold him on me because I had gotten him the job on spring break right so he got me the job on strange brew and we went straight from Florida to Canada and started that movie and it was a, a, a just an amazing experience now when you read the script first of all it's just I one thing I've learned from doing these things now is you got to go over what the movie is otherwise it's like it just doesn't so the movie is effectively taking the two characters from SC, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas created these characters on SCTV, Second City Television, which is Canadian, Canadian Saturday Night Live, which had some of the best writers, you know, in the last fabulous fab, Harold Ramis, oh. tons of them, and uh, those two characters, a bunch of basically the original Beavis and Butthead, Canadian drinking beer stubbies, doing their whole little cable network show. And they wanted to write a script about it or make it into a feature. And in the feature version, it's essentially Hamlet, where they are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern running around yeah, while this, this tragedy is going. Absolutely. Elsinore Brewery, Brewery, Elsinore right. Castle. And the, the father, the, the president of the company has been killed by the uncle and who's married the mother. And it's literally, the only difference is that instead of Hamlet, it's Pamela, who's yeah. the daughter, right? That's who, the by the way, yeah. I married. That's oh, right. shut up. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. We were married for about four years, yes. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, she, must have, she must have loved your lensing. We had a wonderful time together <laughs> for a couple of years. <laughs> so, um, so when you got the script, what was it like? Was it as fun to read? 
Oh yeah. As the results were, I mean, did you oh, did yeah. you know the show already? Did you know the characters? I I knew the characters a little bit, but not not intimately like I learned to know them. But uh, uh, but it was a job, and it was in Canada, and I was with my buddy Brian, who we did like seven movies together. Him as a first AD, and mm -hmm. some some of them as unit manager. But I was always the DP, and. Uh, we loved working together, and we would always just kind of rent a house together. It was a very odd, symbiotic kind of relationship oh, with an assistant director and a director of photography, but uh, it was a good one. And uh, he said, let's go to Canada and make this movie, and I said, great, and got there and met the guys. What had happened was there was another director assigned to the movie. Oh, okay. And uh, the, the two guys, didn't like him. He, his ideas were, he wanted to make it serious. He didn't want to make it into a comedy. Right. And the two guys are saying, hey, this is not right. And so Jack Grossberg uh, was uh, a wonderful producer, uh, an old New Yorker who just knew everything and everybody. And uh, Jack um, uh, said to the two of them, he said, you don't need a director, you direct it. And they said, we've never directed. He said, oh, that's all right, I'll get you a camera and you'll, you'll be fine. And, uh, and so, they, so they became the producers, the writers, the directors, and the stars. So in reality, I was working with like eight people in two. Right. And, uh, and it's also ahead of its time because today you find that sort of thing happening yeah, more often. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but uh, it, was, it was a wonderful production. I, I laughed straight for four months, just four months of laughter. And it was, it was uh, they were delightful, they were gracious. Um, they, you know, made fun of me every day. And we, we just, it was, a, it was a ball. Tell, uh, just the ability to, to work with Max von Sydow. I mean, and like, Every note, like, you know, it's tough when you come into a comedy and you're this, you know, the bad guy. Well, you, you know, look at, when you, you know. when you look at the cast of that thing. Yeah. Uh, the, every major role was played by a phenomenal actor. Paul Dooley. Dooley yeah. Paul Dooley, who came out of Second City. Was breaking uh, away. And, 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 and he, was, he was a total whack job. Uh, Max, who was just the gentlemanly gentleman, he was a wonderful man, and would wow. tell us stories about, uh, about uh, uh, working with, uh, uh, in, in Sweden with um, Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman, Bergman and, and uh, I mean, just wonderful stuff. And, uh, and, and Lynn Griffin, who I was, I was totally in love with her, her work, her acting. Which was fantastic. The whole cast of the movie is amazing. Um, tell us about shooting the hockey, because you look at the hockey scenes and they're gorgeous, gorgeously done. You know, you have at one point you can look up, you can see the the instruments. You know, obviously by mm -hmm. choice, by design. It's this hockey rink surrounded by beer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And these wonderful uh, Star Wars esque, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, stormtrooper outfits. Was was there something? Well, you know what, I want to I want to ask this question, which leads to another question. But what was the conscious style of the movie that you were going for? Because it's just a bit campy, but it's still pretty realistic in many ways. Well, it's it's something that I do with comedy. I, I um, 
to me, comedy has a, a, a particular life that isn't, let's light it up and make it funny. It, 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 is, it, it is compositional. Uh, mm -hmm. I came out of Chicago and there was a guy there named Joe Settlemeyer who did some of the funniest commercials you will ever have seen. And he had a particular style and it kind of affected me in the sense that not that I was, I was uh, copying his style, but what I was doing was I was thinking about the composition in terms of what's funny. And that's what he did. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about the composition because that, that's my overarching thought. When I started going back and watching your movies again, you know, I've been a fan of yours for many years. It just happens, you know, you watch movies, you like the way it looks, you go, oh, you remember the name of the mm -hmm. photographer, you know? But if any years, for many years. But I started watching them again in sequence, kind of like an auteur concept, you know, you watch them cool. all together. I've never done that. Yeah, well, let me tell my you. My wife has never done that. <laughs> well, well, you guys are missing out because uh, what I noticed is that you're specifically about composition. Every, a lot of your movies are two, three, five. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you like anamorphic better than, than a spherical lens, but it's but in that space, that two three five space, every frame of yours is perfectly composed. You get right to the edge on here, right to the you know. For me, I'm not a photographer, but when I am shooting, I never know. Joe's well, well, trying to get the whole thing in frame, and you don't know where to to call it a day, and where this thing you don't need to see the left half of this or the right half of that, and what's important. It's always a challenge, right? You nail it every time. What, it, it, particularly in your wides, in your mediums, you know. You know, I have always believed very strongly that every element of every frame informs the audience. So the frame lines are very important. What crosses a frame line, what's out of the frame, what's in the frame, uh, an element that crosses a frame line is extremely important because your eye is going to go right there and it's going to point to where you want it to see. Mm -hmm. And and when you think about that in, in, in terms of composition, when you think about, uh, um, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't even think about it anymore. I mean, it's intuitive with right. me. Right. It's just something that I've been doing since I was a kid. So when you were a kid, so tell us about that. Did you pick up a still camera and just start shooting things? Or? I started getting involved with still photography when I was about 10. Um, I just was interested in it. Couldn't keep my hands off cameras, you know. Um, my neighbor, my, my, I had a neighbor two houses down whose father built a darkroom. And it just sung out to me you know it was one of those things that so at 10 I started getting interested in photography when I was 14 I was already by the time I was 12 I knew my life was going to be in photography I don't even know what that meant but I was very lucky I mean you know how, how many kids go through life and not never know what they want to do I knew that I wanted to do something with photography. To me, maybe it was weddings and bar mitzvahs. I didn't know. What did I know? Um, but then we should only was, be so lucky. There's still yeah, room right. for you to do that, by and, the way. And listen, you can still never. It's always been my fallback position. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I've always said we'll set it up right if now. If life falls apart, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to register Stephen B. Poster Wedding Photographer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Uh, um, 
at that early at age? At 14, yeah. I had a very good piece of, 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 of fortune happen to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sitting in the living room of my house in suburban Chicago uh, on a kind of uh, uh, nippy afternoon mm -hmm. and looking out the window and I saw uh, a car drive up that at the time I didn't know what it was. It was an old Jaguar. Guy got out, he was wearing a uh, cap and a, had a beard, had a pipe in his mouth mm -hmm. and had a light meter on. And I ran out of the house and I said, hi, I'm Steve, what kind of light meter is it? And he said, son, we'll have a lot of time to talk about that. I'm building a house next door to you. This was a newsreel cameraman, a CBS news cameraman, who also owned, uh, was one of the owners of the news film laboratory in Chicago, oh, Cin wow. Cinema Processors. And he did, he became my mentor. But the minute I met him, when I heard what he did. You thought it was the coolest thing in the world. That's it. I, first of all, he was the coolest guy I'd ever seen. Right. And I wanted to be him. And I, I, and, and, uh, I didn't to that day, that day know what it was, but I knew he shot movies and I knew that's what I wanted to do. It was like a revelation. 14 years old. 14 years old. And from that point on, I considered myself a cinematographer. Now, he was very strict. He was a pedantic son of a bitch, but a great guy. And uh, uh, he insisted that I learn still photography before I ever get into film. That's, okay, see, that's great. Because today, you know, I mean, like, for, exa like for example, lenses, you know, are experiencing this whole revelation and, and evolution now. People are buying, the prices of what usually, you know, going through the roof. Digital photography has never been more prominent, but how many people, how many photographers working today should get the same exact fundamental training that you got? A lot. Right. And it's, it's not pushed enough, is it? It's like, because just because the video cameras are so readily available, it's like people just start shooting with motion and they don't understand the, I mean, not necessarily, but. No, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a serious question whether or not we should have the kind of education that really goes back to the basics. First of all, I, you know, we're, we're in such a transition now with digital and film uh, that the education that I had on film in still photography doesn't really exist anymore and I don't even know if it's relevant. Uh -huh. um, you know, you can say, oh, of course it's relevant, it's the basics, it's the history, you should do that. But nobody's really going to get that opportunity anymore to shoot stills in, in film. In film, yeah. Um, but shooting digital stills could still be applied to... Absolutely. Yeah. But there's something about the discipline of shooting film, spending money every time you press the button, <laughs> that makes you think. Yeah. And you don't get the opportunity to what we call chimp. You ever heard that term before? No. A guy shoots a picture with a still, a digital still camera. He goes, ooh, 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 it's good. Shoots another one. They look. You look after every... There's something about that period of waiting and thinking about what you did 
that is very educational. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know whether or not it's the same kind of education that we're talking about, but it is, it is important to really understand composition, lighting. I learned all my lighting in, in still photography uh, at Art Center mm -hmm. here. Uh, and uh, I learned about form fits function at IIT, the Institute of Design, where I graduated from. And my first education, I got connected to the design department at Southern Illinois University because, first of all, because I was a terrible student in high school. <laughs> I hated high school. So I was a story. terrible, yeah. terrible, terrible student. Right. And uh, uh, the only way I could get into college was I was put in this experimental program at Southern Illinois University called Experimental Freshman Year. In fact, there was just a book that came out about it um, where they were trying to determine why uh, students who were smart, you know, we did well on our SATs, did badly, did badly in high school, right. underachievers. Right, yes. This program was guided by the principles of, uh, at least my part of it was the most experimental part of it, was guided by Buckminster Fuller. Fascinating. Fascinating. Geodesic domes. Geodesic domes, Dymaxian cars. Uh, just one of those thinkers of the 20th century. One of my mentors worked for him, actually. Really? Yeah, another photographer, filmmaker named Morley Markson. I don't know if you ever met him no, when you were in uh, Toronto. But uh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. So I, I had this program and was taught, essentially was taught problem solving. Because what you are as a designer yeah. is you're solving the problem. And what I realized was, what I learned, what I was taught, was that if you can clearly define the problem, if you can clearly ask the question, you're 90% of the, of the way toward the solution. So that's a great discipline to have. It's a great discipline. Yeah, so I had three disciplines. I had, I had that, I had Art Center, where I escaped from Southern Illinois for various reasons, and uh, um, I, I came to Art Center, and I learned, it, the first six weeks was like religious revelation to me about lighting. I learned how to see light. Not necessarily how to light, but how to see light. It's a big difference in the to way- To know what you're looking at. To know what you're looking at. And there was a guy there that taught this lecture, that, uh, the, the beginning lecture, the beginning lighting class, Charlie Potts, wonderful, very quiet and, and, and just a, a sweet human being mm -hmm. who had a way of teaching that was revelatory to me. And I got it, and I got it in the first six weeks, and, and that has changed my life. It's stuff that I think about every day of my life. Sense. Every time I'm looking, I'm looking at you, I see what I learned from Charlie. And David Speck has nailed it. Every time. I'm David's got this it. Guy, this guy's David's got, got it. David's got it, yeah. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Look at him, he's, Look turning, at he's blushing. turning red. He's turning red. And when you blush, you blush <laughs> all yeah, the way to yeah, the yeah. top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's all the way up to the ball then. We should rotate the camera to show David. Great. Okay, so, so going back to, so this is a great tie into what you're talking about with your with, with, with composition. Yes. Because I think your composition jump, literally jumps out when you watch, you don't notice it 
you know, you follow the movie as you should. And you're, and everything you do lensing-wise and, 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 and with your photography and cinematography simply tells the story in a wonderful way. Every element of every frame informs the audience. Right. So you choose the lens, you set the camera, set the frame, set the motion where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. You look at the props, you look at the, the actors, you look at the weight the, of, the, of the, the objects within the frame. You're telling a story with every single frame. Mm -hmm. Can you think of an example of one, just one shot somewhere in your, in, and I'm gonna, obviously if you just ask too big a question, you're gonna have too many answers. So the question I'm gonna narrow down to is, Think about a situation you had where you were in, not conflict, but in dispute with the director about what the shot was going to be. And you finally explained it to the director in that way. No, 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 trust me, because of the following criteria, it's, and then when they got it, it went the right way. Can I do that? If you, um, can, if you can remember I'm, I'm trying to think of one. Well, the, the relationship, for instance, that I have with Richard Kelly. Which we're going to talk about, yeah. Okay, 100%. the relationship I have with Richard Kelly is, is a very, um, it's fun. We have fun together. Mm -hmm. And when, when I set a camera, you know, and uh, Richard says, uh, actually, no, I, I think we should be over here, six inches to the left. We end up arguing about six inches back and forth, and sometimes he wins and sometimes I win. And it's fun. It's a kind of fun intellectual process, but uh, he has moments? his reasons. Uh, and So there have been moments where you've turned and said, you know what, now that I see what you're looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's done the same with me. Can you? Is there a specific example you can remember? And say, I don't know, pick any one of the three or four movies you guys have done together. There was something on the box where we were shooting the front of the house that... Uh, like the wide even composed of yeah, that? Yeah, wide even composed. And he wanted to be a few feet to the left and I wanted to be a few feet to the I right. I know the shot. Because the first time we saw the house, it was dead even. Everything was per like this. Yeah. And then the second time, it's just a little bit over. Yeah, and I'm wondering why. And then I, I was actually looking at the frame, and I think maybe it's because the car is there. I couldn't. Maybe the car. It was the Corvette. Change, change the weight. Change the weight of the shot. Yeah, or something like that. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out. It, it actually jumped out at me because I, I was in the mode of looking at your stuff, going like, man, every Interesting. frame, every frame. And I noticed that one. It was the first. You know, very astute. Well, <laughs> you know, it was. It's funny that. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about working with, well, before Richard Kelly, I gotta, I, I gotta mention this. One of, it's a gem, it's a photographic gem. Big Top Pee Wee. Oh, love that movie. It is a photographic gem. Another and, movie that I had four months of just bliss, wonderful time. Tell us about it. Uh, I had just done uh, Someone to Watch Over Me, which from Ridley Scott's big heavy-duty movie, and uh, heard that uh, um, Pee Wee was going to do another movie. Okay. And I told my agent, I want to do that movie. And she said, Pee Wee Herman? Yeah. And I said, yeah, I want to work with Paul. I want to do that movie. I think he's a genius, a comic genius, and I want to really work with him. Mm-hmm. And so 
she went to the producer, uh, Deborah, and said, I have a client who wants to work on this movie. She said, he does? <laughs> but it turned out, you know, it was just a, a, a movie that I thought, first of all, I thought it couldn't miss because uh, <clears throat> he's, you know, so hot. His first movie was a, a sleeper, huge. but huge, huge, huge. And he's so funny, and, and uh, I heard good things about him personally. And uh, I, I wanted to do the movie, and I got the movie. And the director was Randall Kleiser, who was not a big visualist, um, more of an actor's director. Interesting you say that. And uh, uh, so between the production designer and I, we had a lot of um, leeway to really work together to design what was going on. And I came up with a, a, with a, a color concept on that, that um, up until the circus lands, it's one look. As soon as the circus comes... It all of a sudden goes kind of peachy, orangey, a little bit more red, like yeah. a... It's, yeah. it's, and it's immediately evident when you hit the movie. Very deliberate. And it was amplified by the opening credits, because the opening credits are these red cards, and then all of a sudden we see Pee Wee, and it's this farm, the green comes out, and all these other things come out, and then the circus lands. Yeah. Now, was there filtration involved in that? I used something called an enhancing filter. It was something uh -huh. that Tiffin Filters developed. Um, rare earth glass that enhanced red only enhanced red. So you could put it on, a red barn becomes a red flag, you know. It, <laughs> and, and, and it worked. I had been uh, uh, given the filter by Tiffin to play with because they didn't know what the hell to do with it right. at the time. And I said, I have the perfect use for it. That's amazing. And I used that all the way through to the end of the movie. That's fantastic. Because you, know, you do know, it's subtle. But you notice it. But it, it's you know, there. It's yeah. there. And it, it really Absolutely. is like, you know, the storm hits. Okay. Now I'm just curious. Tell it, Working with animals, there is an unbelievable amount of animal stuff in this movie. Like, it's, it's about, obviously, a circus and a barn and all this stuff. But, all right. So I read the script, and, yeah. I, and it said, animals wake up, make their breakfast, and sit down and eat together. And I said, oh, there's a month of shooting right there. I got to tell you something. We had Hubert Wells was our trainer. He was uh -huh. a genius with all the, those animals. One trainer. One, well, he was the head trainer. And he had a team. And he had a huge team. So even getting the horse to cover itself with a blanket like that. First time. Unbelievable. Everything worked right off the bat. The funny thing was, you know, we had a, <laughs> we, we had a hippo. We had a baby hippo, right? <laughs> right. There's only one hippo that you can rent in America. One. One. One circus animal that's rentable. And that was in Florida. So when we called, when the, the producer called to rent this hippo, they said, uh, well, the problem is that that hippo has a friend who's another hippo. <laughs> and they've never been separated. And then there's a third problem because they're friends with a rhino. <laughs> so we have to travel all three of them across country. And then I, I remember the very first time we were working with the, uh, uh, with the hippo. 
And Hubert came up, we were in a grove of trees, and Hubert came up and said, um, look around and, and, and find a tree that you can climb up. And we said, you know, because it was all low branches and we could do and, and we looked at him and said, Hubert, what are you talking about? He said, you can't train a hippo. So here we were with a wild animal. After having paid for the hippo well, it's, and the it, hippo's it, it, bloody it's hippo. It's true, you cannot yeah. train a hippo, right? Oh my God. You know? um, so, uh, and, and it, there was the one scene when the hippo falls in love with the pig. Mm -hmm. Okay, at the pond, the hippo surfaces, sees the pig, and falls in love. That's it. So the way it was set up, we dug this hole, this pond, uh, and we put a little blind with uh, food in it for the pig. You know, the pig will just eat, you know, right. just stand there and eat. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and we knew exactly how many seconds the hippo would stay underwater. That's a known fact, That's right? Oh, because you, okay, you can... Okay, so uh, we, we had three cameras on it, and we, were, uh, we figured that the hippo was going to come up in the middle of the pond, and, and, uh, and, and, and we could pull the pig out. If anything uh, got dicey, we could pull the pig out. Uh, right away, you know, because, you know, who knows, one bite and that pig is gone. And uh, so the pig is eating away, where cameras are running, hippo is put in the water, goes under, and comes up four feet from the pig. <laughs> and our hearts are beating, 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 because, and the hippo looks at the pig, pig continues to eat, Hippo is not a, a natural enemy of, of the pig. Pig is, it never pays attention to the hippo. The hippo goes back under the water. We pulled the pig out and got the shot. But, <laughs> amazing. You know, I mean, here we were, you know, we could have been shut down for that one. Was there a chance that the hippo would have attacked the, anything? Who knows? Who it's knows? a hippo. Right. You know, who knows? In fact, the hippo, uh, there was one point at which in the circus tent, we were <laughs> at the end. We were trying to put the hippo was the girl, the girl, you know. We were trying to put the, the a bow, a pink bow, around the hippo's neck. Right. And the hippo did not want that, and took the this trainer, this young guy who grew up with the hippo, took him by the arm and flung him ten feet. Didn't crush the arm or anything. Just said, "Get out of here." Get out of here. I don't want any. I'm not, I'm not wearing your yeah. bow. The best part about that, the, yeah. the entire movie, though, yes. was, was the elephant. Yes. Flora. To this day, I'm in love with Flora. I would go down to the pond and visit Flora every is, day. Just to be clear, this is your second on-screen relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That we, that, we, that we know of. I've cleared that up now. Okay, fine. Um, that problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Flora, so you would, you would go, you were saying? I would go and visit this, this elephant, this six-year-old baby elephant that had been rescued. It's a wonderful, sweet animal. And uh, I had an opportunity a number of years later, uh, I was in the same, I was in Fort Worth, no, Houston, shooting a movie. And Circus Flora was in the area, I found out, and I went and I visited, and it was like the elephant absolutely remembered me. Got very excited when he saw me, and or she saw me, and and uh, we had this we had this amazing relationship. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, well, I, I mean, all I have to say is it look, you look kind of big top peewee, and I'm just looking and going, this is a gorgeous movie. It's just a gorgeously done movie. Thank you. It's, it's just beautiful, and everything about it is so simple and, and, and charming. And um, But what I want to actually to talk about across all your films, uh, a, a, a sort of outcropping of peewee, special effects. Mm-hmm. Special effects. The storm scene. You know, Pee-wee's in town with the, all these 1950s trucks, and then all of a sudden, he, you know, we see the storm brewing. So there's some techniques that obviously you employ. First of all, the sky looked like it was someplace it was actually just straight black and white over top a colored. But you, that was a visual effect. It was a visual effect. Yeah. You managed to. You're dealing with practical effects. You're dealing with wind that I'm assuming you generated. You're dealing with trying to do some kind of I don't know, making it look darker when maybe the mm-hmm. weather was cooperating. Maybe it wasn't. Everything integrates beautifully. When you look at Strange Brew. And Pee-wee. And even going further into something like Donnie Darko with the, you know, the stabbing and into the... You have a way of working with the special effects that is like unabashed. It's Thank like you. you put the effect right... Th- you don't try and hide it. Or it's not, it's not kind of... It's not mm-hmm. a subtle thing. And they always work. Even in Strange Brew with a flying dog that looks completely ridiculous... The fly, you know, yeah. it's, it's strange brew. The flying dog looks ridiculous. There are other things that look complete, but they always work. Why is that? How how do you do that? Well, remember one of the first movies I ever worked on was Close Encounters, and I had an awful lot of time on my hands that summer to spend time with the physical effects people and Doug Trumbull and the visual effects people. Um, In fact, one of the first things I ever shot on that movie was a plate uh, for for Trumbull. Mm -hmm. And I just soaked it up. I loved it. And then I worked with him again when I was second unit on on our additional photography on Blade Runner. Right. Um, Under under Jordan Cronenworth, right? Yeah, Jordan, who was Jordan... Jordan was the best of us. There was nobody better. Connie Hall, Jordan, you know, a few a few of these people were just giants. Giants. But Jordan was one of the sweetest, gentlest human beings you'd ever want to meet. And through his illness and everything, he just he never lost that quality. And I see the same thing in his son today. Jeff. Jeff. Jeff has that same sweet quality with a tremendous talent behind it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But uh, but working. What did you do on Blade Runner? I mean, I, I saw it on additional photography, but you never know what. I mean, one of the by the, my understanding is that when Chris Nolan got the job to do Batman, uh-huh. Batman Begins, he sat down with. And I, this may be apocryphal, it may be you know, bullshit, I have no idea, but my understanding is they sat down with, with, with Wally Pfister and the visual effects supervisor and they put on Blade Runner and they said, this is what we're going to do. That it was not, we're not going to, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do as much of it in camera as we can and we're going to use models and things like that. I don't know if it's true. I, my, it's a good story. It's a good, it's a good story, regardless. Yeah, but... Um, Wally's another great one. Oh, yeah. 
another great one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got hired toward the end of Blade Runner mm -hmm. because they sent several DPs out to try and do one shot that never satisfied Ridley. And I was kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, innocent. And I came in and they said, here's what you're doing. You're going out, you're shooting up the uh, Second Street Tunnel in downtown Los Angeles. You're shooting a car going through it. It's this little car we call the Spinner. And uh, uh, Ridley's never been happy with what was done before. Just go out and do something. We're trying to get it off the books. So, uh, and they said, oh, oh, you can't have any lighting. No, We're not I'll, sending any lighting out. Well, that helps. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, right. Uh, so, um, it, that, it's, a, it's a tunnel that's now been in every music video and commercial and other movie that I've ever seen. It's a white tile tunnel. I'm mm -hmm. sure you've seen it a million times. Yep. Um, I didn't have much support equipment. I did have a water truck. It was a very hot night. It was it happened to be a hugely hot summer, and uh, um, so we would spray the thing down, and, and ten minutes later it'd be dry. You know, but uh, thanks for the wet down. Yeah, right. Um, but what I did was I, I I had every truck and car that we had with us go to the other side of the tunnel and point their headlights in and put them on bright. <laughs> so you did, you brought some instruments with you. And uh, then I took the camera and I put it, because the car was very small, very low to the ground, I put the camera on the ground on a sandbag and I let the car zoom through. And I did a couple more shots like that, similar to that. And went home. The next day I got a call, Ridley would like you to come in again. So okay, great. So I came in, Ridley said, loved what you did, mate. Here's a couple other shots. And that continued till the very end of the movie. And I was there every night and I would do, we would complete scenes that, uh, uh, that he had started with Jordan uh, and maybe never finished. They were doing uh, two or three shots a night um, based on and their, their visual effects, huge visual effects. Um, and uh, I just got to do entire scenes. I did the entire scene in the dressing room when Harrison Ford gets beat up by uh, Joanna and uh, when she sort of strangles him with the tie. Yeah, and the I whole shot that whole scene, including when she's sort of blow drying herself. Yeah, and yeah, that was all you. Yeah, oh, it's a stunning scene. Yeah, that it's was an absolutely uh, stunning scene. And uh, was he particular? I'm assuming he was particularly back then with atmosphere that you have to have smoke oh, yeah. in the room oh, constantly. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it? Was it just? Was it? Was it just like a, a like a no like a, a just. A, untold, unspoken thing? or you know. That was it. And I had done a lot of work with Atmosphere before that. So uh, one, of my <laughs> one of my first features, I probably took about 10 years off my life using uh, Fuller's Earth. We used a ton of it. It was uh, a picture called Dead and Buried. Um, and remastered, actually, and, and it, it, it looks pretty good. <laughs> but we used a lot of, a lot of smoke, a lot of Fuller's Earth. 
which you know is carcinogenic, of course. Really, and we know this now. We know this now. This is stu- this is stuff that I, I, I didn't know. Yeah, I, I, that, that was what. So we what, used to use bee smoke, uh, AB smoke, and bee smoke, and uh, stuff that just was so bad for you. Bad for you. Bad. It was funny when we were interviewing uh, D- uh, Dean Cundy. There was this joke that he, he he was saying, you know, like you wouldn't dare actually, you know, what, what you can do with CGI now, you can blow up or whatever next to the star that you wouldn't dare put next to a star. And I said, where's it posed in your day where you just kill a star without thinking about it? No problem. <laughs> Absolutely. And he went, yeah, of course. Well, uh, my my experience with some of that early stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and and you, you know, you bring up Strange Brew, uh, there were some visual effects in that movie. Yes. Now remember, we're doing them on film. We're not doing them, okay. Uh, I turned to, in pre-production, I turned to Jack Gross, Grossberg and I said, Jack, uh, when am I going to meet the visual effects supervisor? He said, you already have. I said, what are you talking about? He says, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So now, so now you, you have no one to, to lean on. I mean, as a photographer, you have to lean on no, your... No, but you know. what I did was yeah. I, I sat down knowing my proclivity to just kind of go off uncocked. Uh, I, I, I sat down and I wrote out each sequence that needed visual effects. And if I had a question, who did I call? I'd call Richard Edlund. I'd call uh, Doug Trumbull. I'd call, you know, one of the guys... To to answer the question, and right. uh, and and it, you know they were very, probably very simple. I don't even remember what the visual effects were, but well, the, there's one where you look inside the tank and Rick Moranis is oh, now right. the full size of yeah, the tank. The, 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 how did you the do fat that? Suit. The fat suit, yeah. How did you do that? We when, had a blow up suit, and and you just sort of matted him into yeah, <laughs> yeah. hilarious, yeah, hilarious. But you know the the the, the, go, the ghost, also the ghost of uh, that appears out of the video game, right. That was a visual effect. How did you? It almost looked like you managed to get like video scan lines on them somehow or something. That was done in in uh, in post. That was done by the visual effects company. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about your work with Richard Kelly because it, it, now we're talking about there's kind of a canon of work there a little bit. Yeah. Um, that really has an interesting evolution to it. In the three that, that I'm going to reference, Donnie Darko, uh, Southland Tales, The Box, in every one of those you can see the voice of the photographer-director, cinematographer-director relationship working together. But it's different every time. It's different, different, different thing every time. Donnie Darko is like this, you know, if you had to pitch it today, having seen the movie, Five times you'd have a hard. It, it, it's hard to put into words yeah. what that movie is, but it's one hundred percent. I mean, this is a movie that found a life on video. It had a small release. Some people didn't get it. Some critics, and then over the years, it was hailed as this masterpiece. You put it into in again today. You watch it today. It's a masterpiece. Everything about that movie yeah. is like you know set against the backdrop of suburban decay these weird cast of characters, and there's a wonderful sequence early on in the film, towards, you know, maybe 20 minutes in, a steady cam over the, uh, over the music, and I forget who the, um, the song is, but well, steady cam, Tears for Fears, Tears for Fears. Yeah. going around the high school, showing about, 
80% of the main characters, 90% of the main characters. And that's basically the movie. I mean, that's basically the movie. Is that, is that, you know, outside of the, outside of the rabbit, outside of Frank, but what was, I mean, visually, what, what were you trying to do with the movie? You know what I mean? It's, it's an interesting situation. Richard, um, Let's back up. I, I got the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had been out of the country for seven months working on a French movie that never got distributed here, unfortunately, because I think it was terrific. But it opened up the same day as Titanic. Never saw the light of day. You know? And uh, so uh, I was out of the country. I had uh, a, a year, year and a half to two years after that of personal stuff going on and I wasn't taking any movies. Um, and I was cold, I was out of the market and I needed a picture. Uh, and talked to some friends about it. A friend of mine, Thomas Newton Siegel, was asked to do Donnie Darko. And he said, you know, I'm not available to do that but I have a friend who you should talk to Stephen Poster and they got me a script I read the script and I said I want to do this movie and I went in for the interview now remember Richard is about 23 at the time right and Sean they're both they're both 23 24 years old at the time and uh, I went in and I said I want to do your movie. I said, it's a fabulous script. I said, but we have to agree on something before we do it. So we have to agree that you and I, Richard, are going to sit down privately for three or four days, whatever it takes, and read the script together. And I said, okay, fine. I got the movie. First day, I walked in. It was a little like a college dorm, and uh, I was at House in Venice, and I, I walked in, and uh, I saw Richard was pacing back and forth, pacing, pacing, pacing. And I said to Richard at that point, I said, Richard, I said, look at me. He stopped, he looked at me, and he said, from this point on, you and I are the same age. Don't ever think that my age or my experience is going to stop you from directing this movie. I'm here to help. And boom, he relaxed. And from that point on, we've had the most amazing relationship. We sat down and we read the movie. We read the script. We read it so thoroughly. I mean, we spent four days doing this. And we took notes. Mm -hmm. uh, I took notes. I made notes about where, where, how we wanted to shoot it. When we walked out of there, and I made him justify everything he wanted to do, he made me justify everything I wanted to do. Um, and one of the things was he wanted to do the first shot, he wanted to do the introduction in the school in one shot, one steady cam shot. And Which is, and the funny thing is, you hear that, and, and the first thing that goes to everyone's mind is, oh, okay, that trick. Oh, casino, oh, casino, that, or, you know, atonement, whatever the latest thing is, you know, player, 
everybody does it occasionally, not everybody, people do it occasionally and it's always, you know. So are you saying you as a photographer thinking like, okay, so you want a gimmick and what's the reason for it? Is that what was going through your... Well, I hadn't seen the school, so I said, I, I said, you know, let's take a look at the location. He said, no, I got a piece of music. I know it's going to fit. I know it's going to work. I want that. So we finished the four days, and we, we had pretty much a, a, a shot list at that point. We knew the movie in our head at that point. And so we went out. They found a location, found the school right here in Venice and uh, Crenshaw. I forget what, where it was. And... Uh, um, I walked in and I said, "This, is, you know, we can't do this. It's not going to work." So the producers came to me and said, uh, "You, you got to talk him out of this. You got to say no. You can't let him do this. It's going to ruin the movie. We will never make the day." Blah 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 blah. And uh, I am not in the business of saying no to a director. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean, I I will say yes in a way that makes them decide no, but I'm not gonna tell a director no. It's right. not my job. Right. I'm there to, to facilitate for them. So I said, okay, here's, here's what I wanna do. I want to go to the location. I told this to the producers. I wanna go to the location with the steady camera operator on a Saturday before we have to shoot in there, and we'll figure out what, you know, what the shot's going to be. You got to talk them out of it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. We got to the location on a Saturday. Richard said, "Let's go in." And I said, "No, you go in with the uh, with the uh, uh, the Steadicam operator for a while. I want to look around outside." And by the way, here's a stopwatch. I handed him a stopwatch. And about 20 minutes later, he came out. He said, okay, five shots. He realized that the screen, screen time to do this in one shot was never going to work. So we designed the shot inside. We designed the shot coming off the bus into the school. The, the starting sideways. Starting sideways. There's another story about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, we designed where each character was going to be introduced. We had a ramp on the camera. We had uh, yep, which you use, yeah. Which we we used, and every one of those was ramped except one. We did one speed up that wasn't planned uh, to fit the music, and so it's in the school and all the way out the, the back door. That was one shot. Around the back side was another shot, all the way to the girls. To the to the uh, the cheerleaders or the little dancer girls, mm -hmm. uh, and then and then uh, uh, Drew coming in and going into her classroom and then in the classroom. It, it's it's just there's something. I mean, again, I, I'd be hard pressed. I think anybody would hard be hard pressed to tell you exactly in terms why the movie is so compelling from frame one to frame, the end. But it is. It just is, and that sequence kind of is, in a sense, the movie. Visually, there's a couple things I wanted to ask you about. You managed to make the movie dim but not dark. You know, it's like it's got this this texture to it. Even when the sunlight is coming hard, it's like it's like it's been softened a bit in a way, or or, or sort of this whole the whole presence of the movie is this slightly drowsy 
just slightly drowsy throughout, and yet it's not, it's never boring, it's never uninteresting, it's never flat. Um, the shadows are seldom hard. They're almost always soft. And then all of a sudden Frank comes in and there's these deep, deep, deep shadows, you know. Was this all, is this all part of, I mean, were you using filtration a lot of the time? I mean, I, I was born with filtration on my eyes. I don't shoot without some form of diffusion. It's part of the expression of what I do. Okay. Um, so it's not, it's not my imagination. You know, and, and in fact, we're reaching into an era, era now with, uh, you know, uh, oh, sharp, 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 4K, 4K, 8K, 8K. You know, I'm designing filters for 4K that people can help themselves not show every pore on every person's skin. Um, Tiffin, Tiffin Filters and I are, are, are collaborating on that. Um, combinations of diffusion, but no, of course I do. But there was also another factor here. Um, that it, it, Richard wanted to shoot anamorphic. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. I said, that's a great idea. The producer said, oh, you can't do that. It's going to cost money. You need more lighting. Da, 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 da. I said, don't worry about the lighting. There's this new film stock. It's an 800 ASA film stock from Kodak. And I'll 80, use it, that. Was it eight, not 84? What was 800 ASA? It was 79 was the 500, and then the 800 was... Eight, 84. Eighty like no eighty four was in that was a softer fight. Anyway, you used the eight hundred for the whole movie. Entire movie. It was the I only no movie ever no shot. The only movie ever shot that used the eight hundred stock. The whole time. The whole time. I mean, I, I don't think there was many other movies that even used it at all. But I used it. And I said, I, and that's how I I, I convinced the producers that it was going to be okay. I said, uh, I said first of all. I'll use this. We won't have to have a deficit in lighting because it's much faster. It'll, it'll, be, it'll solve that problem. I said, second of all, it's much better in this film to shoot anamorphic because we're in practical locations. And with anamorphic, I can put lights on the ceiling. Right. With, uh, with 185, I can, I'd have to uh, put them somewhere else. And this will be much faster, much faster. I was bullshitting. <laughs> but it worked, and in fact, both of those were good factors, too. And they were, and it pretty, pretty, they were bullshitting to a certain degree, but yeah. you were telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, so you shot the whole thing on anamorphic primes? Yeah. And, by the way, yep. you don't need that many lenses to shoot a movie. Correct. So we, were, we had already predetermined our lens package by the time we read the script together. Uh, it's funny. One of my questions was, was it 35 or, or, or super 35 or anamorphic? So how many? So was was there one lens that sort of tended to be the the, Don, the Donnie Darko lens that you know that you lived on more than any other on that on that film? You know, I don't remember. Okay. But we did have an anamorphic zoom that I used a lot. But um, the open. This is what I was doing. The opening of the movie. We open, uh, now I'm referring to the director's cut, so I don't know if this doesn't, I, I didn't watch both in, in preparing, but um, the very opening, it's sort of, Hall is Jake, because both of them are in it, is in the middle of the road and what looks like, I don't know, somewhere like a, a Ventura or something like that. Or Angela's a, Crest. Yeah, okay. And it, 
we, we slowly sort of, I guess, steady cam towards him. And then it comes around, and then it cuts to a shot of him standing up facing the horizon. Mm -hmm. And it looks at the same time very naturalistic, very natural, and totally bizarre. Why is that? What about that shot? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. It's behind It's behind his head. It's a yeah. single one. I know it's very specific. Yeah. <clears throat> it was the only light I took out that day. First of all, we had to shoot that twice. Because the first time, the Steadicam operator, there was something wrong with the Steadicam, and you could see every step. It just, it was loose or something like that. It just, it just, it was no good. We went out there the second time, and, uh, you know, the timing on that was very specific because of the, the light. It was, we only had one or two takes, period, uh, where the light would be right. <clears throat> and we finished that shot. It worked. Um, and we wanted the one shot of him uh, of, of him in the frame looking off into the horizon and then walking off. And uh, uh, I had a little battery light with me so I could put a little bit of light on, on the edge of his face as he turned to the camera. And in fact, we opened it up. It was, it was not there until he made his turn. Uh, and it was a it was a long a longer lens, um, but I had enough stop by that time that I could stop it down, put a polarizer on it, and get that sky with those clouds. And 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 there was a fog that day. It was uh, was it early summer? I think it was early summer. There was a particular kind of fog that day that just was brilliant. Made it. It made it. It made it work. Yeah, it's just as Sometimes you take the lucky accidents and you make them into signature shots. That's a sound bite. <laughs> right there. That, well that, because it is just, it's just such a gorgeous shot. Yeah. I mean, really looking at I mean, there's just something so haunting about it. Yeah. Um, Not only yeah. that, but his smile. Oh yeah, <clears throat> when he turns to the, and and his smiles and, and walks off, you know you have no idea what the hell's going on. The scene when he gets up from the movie theater and goes to burn the house down, because the Frank the rabbits told him to do it. The, yeah, is, is you know it really is uh, that's a, an acting triumph because he makes it feel completely sympathetic, mm -hmm. and you don't know you don't know why. I mean it's just you know. The whole the whole thing is sympathetic. Um, yeah. Frank the Rabbit is another case. Yeah, another go situation. ahead. This is where I really learned to trust Richard. Okay. The production designer, Alec Hammond, brilliant, brilliant, do something with no money at all, and did our three movies. Um, the costume designer. Um, April Ferry, who is premier, just wonderful woman. Um, said to Richard, you know, what, what, what's the rabbit going to look like? What are we going to make the rabbit into? And Richard went home that night and, and, and painted it. Drew it. This haunting fang. And he came in and showed us this picture. And we all said, Richard, you can't do that. 
that's not right. It's not, and we argued and argued with him and he said, no, 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 that's what I want. That's what I want. And he was absolutely right. And the three of us actually learned you know, why did you think? His, why did you think it was wrong when you saw it? What well, is, you know, you look at that thing, and you're, you know, you say, we're reading Bunny Rabbit the whole time in the in the script, and he comes up with this demented picture. You know, I get it. So in your mind, it was like there was an irony to the fact that this was going to look like a bunny rabbit with you know big eyes and soft, yeah, and, you know, something like that, something like that. And there was and there was irony to it with the voice, and now here he is coming in with this. Yeah. No, but when you see it, it's just... He's right. It's right. It's absolutely right. I mean, he was just brilliant doing that. Fantastic. Um, is, there, is there anything about when you saw Donnie Darko, the finished product cut together? Did it exceed your expectations? I mean, first of all, when you saw it, how did you feel about it? And then what happened when the release came and it was a soft landing? No, I, I loved this movie all the way through. It was not something that uh, I ever doubted the quality of what the movie was. I wasn't crazy about the release of it. Mm -hmm. You know, what did it release in 60, 70 theaters? That's it, you know, something like that. So uh, to me, it was um, thrown away, essentially, and I'm so glad it, it's found its life. But uh, there were... Th my involvement didn't stop with shooting on that movie. I continued on. I just attached myself to it because I felt that it needed the care and feeding that I could give it, that I understood in post. And I mean, I was personally carrying cans from the laboratory to the telecine, and I was doing stuff that you know a DP doesn't do. And I was there for the sound mix. I was there for, for and I, I timed the thing. I was very, very involved all the way through because I wanted to make sure that Richard had a good shot at this. Um, it, it just is that kind of, uh, that kind of project. That, and, and there was something that happened to me artistically on that project that what was happened? very important. What happened? Well, I, you know, started out when I was 10 in photography. I went to school for it. I knew it. I'm technical. I'm very technical. I know a lot about tech, the technology of making movies, mm -hmm. even in digital. Right. Uh, <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. No, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been a spokesman for the transition to digital for uh, 15 years now. Mm -hmm. All around the world, I've done, done that. Uh, David will tell you the uh, my my uh, editorials, my e newsletter uh, editorials, my magazine editorials have a lot of of, of, of stuff about that. Uh, so it's not something that scares me or I'm worried about. In fact, I relish the whole transition. Yeah. Um, but I, with all that technology behind me, I was there was something that was not satisfying me artistically, and I wanted to find a way to uh, work more intuitively and throw out the technical. And I had been toying with that for a long time. Donnie Darko was the first movie that I was really successful doing that. That movie was not shot from here. It was shot from here. Every shot, every day. I came home every night so 
jazzed about what I was doing. Well, it jumps off the screen. Thank you. Yeah, no, the, 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 everything you're saying is evident in the movie because, you know, I, I mean, comparisons are kind of silly at times, but that, with that caveat, that being said, yeah. um, <laughs> it's always, with that being said, I'm going to do exactly what I said I shouldn't do. You know, it really is one of the few films that has a sort of life to it in the same way David Lynch film has a life to it. Um, it's not a David Lynch film. It's mm -hmm. entirely different from, than, than, than that kind of a voice, but it was, it was truly one of the, one of the most, I'd say, I mean, I'd say most unique. It was one, one of the most influential and important, important films. It's, it's one of the most important films of, of, of that period. You I know, think so. I, think, I think it's important to film history, actually, too, because you look back on it now, and it's, it's, it's ahead of its time. So, um, so just talking about the box, because I, I, again, watching them back to back, I watched Donnie Dark and then I watched the box, and all of a sudden I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, this is, it, it, you know, again, there are traces of the same, same filmmaking team, there's traces of the same photographer, but it looks totally different. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different picture. Um, warmer, m this, the house is extremely warm. It's like the tungsten is, you know, jumping off the screen, the warmth of it, and more contrasty, like this sort of like the sort of these darker, darker blacks that kind of jump. At least it may have been the transfer, but that's the way it looked to me. And then all of a sudden, it's punctuated. The minute you see there's this, you know, whatever minutes in, 50 minutes in, all of a sudden we see this people standing in front of a blue pool. <laughs> the whole thing looks like a lake, like an ice, like an ice rink. Uh, you know, was that like a conscious? You knew you were just going to hit the audience at that point with a totally different look, in the same way you sort of did with Big Top Pee Wee. Or? Oh yeah, um, that was kind of the transition, and, and we, did, we did some extraordinary stuff in that movie. I really loved some of the stuff we did, but that that scene that you're talking about, um, we were hit with a massive snowstorm uh, before we were shooting in the motel. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Massive snowstorm. Right. I mean, you know, of course, wherever you go, the locals will always say. Well, that never happens this time of year. <laughs> right, you know, it's right. always that's the famous right. thing you always hear. Uh, but uh, there was like three feet of snow on the ground, and we had to make it work uh, for that scene because it was supposed to. Not, there was not supposed to be any snow in that movie, and uh, in fact, we had a lot of it. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, that's one of those happy accidents where. You say, you know, make that a signature shot. So that fed into the, sort of the scene that preceded it, where Marsden is at the at the night party, and there's you know there's snow outside, I believe, when they go to yeah. the gazebo, and yeah. So it sort of fed in. Uh, so it, it worked, was it worked really well. It worked really well. Right. Well, I certainly was worried about what was happening to the Corvette in wintertime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sliding being Canadian. But it's yeah right. <laughs> yeah no. So is there something about that movie that you hold? you cherish as well like I mean, we talked about some sequences in Donnie Darko is there a sequence in the box that you you know because it's a bizarre movie it's a bizarre wonderful science fiction film you know I really love the stuff that we did at the uh, uh, at the wind tunnel um, just such great visual opportunities and we did that that one shot with a, a 50 foot techno crane where it's it's down on the ground and it comes up and it goes up and up and up into the into his lair. Mm -hmm. you know. 
lot of that had to do with the design. That was the oldest existing wind tunnel in America, maybe in the world at that point. Um, they've since decommissioned it. But uh, it's huge. It's a huge, huge building with tunnels and blowing and fans. And, you know. uh, but we, we designed on that platform, we designed that ring light that went over his, uh, his secret area. And we had this great shot from the ground all the way up on a techno crane. And it was that, that really, that stuff really was fun to do. Fantastic. Yeah. What, is it fair to say that you're, because you look at the body of your work, and you have been, in my opinion, privileged to shoot stories that are not common, stories that are not, do not fit for lack of better words, a box, out of the box. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, no pun intended. And is, you know, is that, is that just a fact? I mean, you know, you mentioned getting the job for Donnie Darko. You probably came in and were so impassioned about getting it that it came out of you. It came, it, 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 was, it was evident. Um, is, is, it, is, it, is it by design that you've sought out these projects or is it, Yes and no. I mean, you know, some, certainly some things come to you, but a lot of things are, are, are movies that I've gone after. Um, I, in some ways, this has probably hurt my career over the long run because they can't nail me as, oh, he's an action guy, or he's a comedy guy, or he's a romantic guy, or whatever. I do it all. Right. And I enjoy doing it all. I've, I pr I've not done... A, a, a true cowboy movie. Mm -hmm. I've not done a true war movie, mm -hmm. and I've not done a complete musical. I've done a lot of music, but those are the three genres I've not actually had a chance to work in yet. And someday I hope I do. Uh, but uh, but I've had a chance to do just about everything else. I love comedy. Mm -hmm. Comedy is much harder than 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 drama in a lot of ways. I love comedy. I grew up with comedy in my life, and that was, to me, very, a very important genre. Well, you've managed to work in comedic, a comedic style into things that are kind of quasi, kind of half this and half that. And mm -hmm. the, some of the most interesting pictures. Stephen Poster, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's great having you. Great.